0: Hi, everybody. My name is Ernie, and I am an alcoholic. I'm pleased that Hoot didn't introduce me with one of those horribly obscene lawyer jokes. Uh, actually, there are only two lawyer jokes, all the rest are true stories. You know. uh, we are not a glum lot. We absolutely insist on having a good time, don't we? But uh, my wife had a pacemaker put in a couple of days ago. And she was a little weak, needed some help around the house, but she looked pretty good this morning. And uh, so the fact that she had improved, and also because word reached me that if I didn't show up tonight that uh, Dick M. over there would be the substitute speaker, <laughs> I determined to walk, run over hot coals if necessary uh, to get here. But uh, usually when I... Uh, it's always an honor to be asked to speak at any AA function. It's a particular honor to speak at a conference. I counted a signal honor to be included amongst the wonderful and very popular speakers that, uh, that have shared their time with you this weekend. And I'm sorry I couldn't have been here for the uh, entire conference. I was here for the uh, workshop. I came in particularly to... Uh, in time for that, and uh, there was nothing that Dick said that I could challenge. You know, I uh, met him the day he came to his first meeting. I was showing a film strip on General Services, and people were groaning in the audience. (laughs) And uh, it was, and the, the film script was not working. You know, I'd have to say, turn the lights on, and then would fix it, and then show a little more of it, and it would stop, turn the lights on. And so uh, Dick didn't get too much out of, about sobriety out of that session, but uh, my sponsor was there backing me up that evening, and he then declared himself Dick's sponsor at the hot shop across the street, and... As you see, the rest is history. Uh, Last February, I had the great good fortune to celebrate my 40th anniversary in AA. And uh, thank you. And uh, I can tell you this that uh, there's a. uh, I went to the Catholic University of America for seven years, the school. And while I was there, we studied a lot of papal encyclicals, things like that. One of them was titled Quadrigesimo Anno, which means simply 40 years later. So I'm going to make my talk tonight from the perspective of 40 years later. And I can tell you right at the outset that I have more questions now than I do answers, really. That's number one. Number two, I've had a... Relatively interesting and exciting life. Uh, now that I reflect on it, I've been a trial lawyer in the District of Columbia. I uh, have been a real estate developer. I was a publisher. I've been in uh, commercial businesses. And uh, so I've had uh, a broad range of experiences. I've been very privileged to have traveled all over the world. In fact, I've been to meetings all over the world in exotic places like Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And Dick was telling me today about somebody up in his group that uh, had met me in Hong Kong seven or eight years ago. And I've been to meetings in places like Beijing and uh, Sydney, Australia and Warsaw and Lithuania and Greece and London and Paris. But I'll tell you this. With all of my experience, all of my background, I've never encountered anything that is absolutely as fascinating and continually uh, enticing as the tremendous fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. We really have something great here. And I will tell you this right now, that I would rather be right here Right now than any place else on the face of the earth. Because this is the reality I have at this moment. And this is just one of the gifts I can savor from my sobriety. You know, when I was drinking, I was never comfortable where I was. I always wanted to be someplace else. What's happening over there? Is it more exciting or whatever? And here I can savor the moment. We can share this evening together and celebrate life here. Because at this moment, this is the only reality you and I have. And I'm very privileged that you're willing to share about an hour of it. I won't take any more than that because I know that there are some young men among you that uh, say, well, this talk is the last thing we have to endure before the dance. (laughs) when we're going to meet Miss Wright. (laughs) Anyhow, I was there once. Anyhow, you know, uh, it's hard hard really to fathom how I got here. I was kicked out of a fine prep school, St. Vincent's Prep, in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, where my immigrant parents had saved nickel to nickel to send me my senior year, I was kicked out for drinking. Uh, after that, I went into the service, and I got a four-year scholarship to VPI in Virginia in the Army Specialized Training Program, and I drank my way out of that. Because of my wretched performance after that, another opportunity I was given in the Counterintelligence Corps uh, in the Army, I was sent over to Korea. None of these episodes, none of these things convinced me that I had a problem with alcohol. The talking to me by the headmaster, uh, the problems I had, I never had any what you'd call court-martials or serious problems or anything in the service, but I, I, I had a life of wretched mediocrity. Uh, later on in school, falling short... Not doing as well as I should, uh, the, the, uh, the bewilderment in my mother, aged mother's eyes, the tears in my wife's eyes, uh, none of these things did anything to me. And then one day I, I met this adding machine salesman that was later to become Dick sponsor. And I was zapped sober. I got sober overnight. I quit drinking. I haven't had a drink since. I was zapped by grace. Zapped by grace. That's the only explanation I have. How frustrating it must be for people in the other disciplines, members of the clergy like my headmaster, psychiatrists, physicians, loyal spouses, people like that with all their efforts uh, to get no results and then see some guy that's relatively nondescript An adding machine salesman come along and says, I'm taking Ernie to a meeting. And then Ernie never drinks after that. It's bewildering. Now, here's what happened in my case. I think the God of my understanding said, I'm going to zap Ernie sober. I'm going to strike him sober with grace. Overnight, bam! Like a bolt of lightning. But on the... Way to live and how to live, because this guy thinks he's so smart, because he's so arrogant, because he thinks he's so fast on the uptake, I'm going to put him in the lifetime slow learners class.
1: <laughs>
0: and I'm going to make him grind it out. Life is going to be a game of inches for him. He's going to grind it out an inch at a time. And he's going to make these wonderful discoveries after he's sober 5 and 10 and 15 and 20 years that other people just knew innately and intuitively when they were children. That part's not funny because that's that's the way it's been. That's the way it's been. The very first year I was in AA, my sponsors, they have a retreat, There's Jesuit retreat house. And when I came into AA, we always had a non-alcoholic priest because uh, 40 years ago there were no alcoholic priests. You know, we didn't have any alcoholic priests in those days. But anyhow, uh, so we, uh, this Jesuit retreat house, uh, Buck walked up to me one day, my sponsor, and he says, give me 20 bucks. I says, what for? He says, we're going on a retreat. I says, Buck, I'm not the retreat type. He says, give me 20 bucks. I says, Buck, we had a free retreat every year at Catholic University, seven years in a row. I never went once. He says, give me 20 bucks. I gave him 20 bucks, I went. When I got to the retreat, the director, this was a new retreat house, The Jesuits know how to buy real estate. It's on the banks of the Potomac at its broadest, (laughs) overlooking the water. It's not hard to be spiritual there, I'll tell you. But anyhow, uh, the director of the retreat house said, you know, we have a priest here that is so holy that even we Jesuits think that he has mystical leaps of knowledge because of his piety, and uh, you're privileged to have him this weekend. And I sort of groaned, you know. <laughs> so the first session of this retreat, this little old man shuffles down the aisle in slippers, and he gets up front, and he said, you know, some mornings I have to drag myself down the same Mass. I thought to myself, you have to drag yourself down. You're supposed to be so holy. You ought to be running down there, you know. (laughs) Bang. But he said, I just don't feel like getting up, but I go. He said, sometimes spirituality can be cold and dry. But it's nice to have the warm fuzzies. It's nice to have the good feelings. But they're not essential. They're not essential. Doing the deed is what is essential. And you know, that hit me like a bullet. That's one of the first big lessons in this slow learners class I learned in AA. That many times previously in my life, what I thought was some form of spirituality was nothing more than maudlin sentimentality. Something like you have at a three-hanky movie, you know, where you (laughs) sort of get teared up and then go out and have an ice cream sundae and forget all about it. Emotional. Emotional. I had lived a life, a great deal of following my feelings. But this priest told me, he said, you know, the action is important. It's nice to have the good feelings, but they're not essential. And quite often, your feelings will follow your actions. Now, I found that to be absolutely, positively true in my AA experience. And I'll tell you why. Because I came to meetings not wanting to come here. I didn't belong here with you people. Uh, But I came. So I did what I didn't want to do. And I wanted a drink, but I didn't drink. And the second day, I didn't want to go to the meeting and I went and I wanted to drink, but I went to the meeting not wanting to go and didn't drink wanting to drink. And I kept doing that. And then one day something happened. I went to the meeting because I wanted to go there to see the guys and I didn't want to drink anymore. I never knew for my dear friend that's four days sober. I never knew that there would come a day that I would learn to want to not drink. For some of it, it comes sooner, and for others it takes longer. But I got that release. And here I thought at the beginning that this was going to be a lifetime endurance contest. Now, for the people that are very new here, let me explain what a lot of us mean when we say we're alcoholics. When I say I'm an alcoholic, I mean simply that I cannot take a drink safely. This is all that I admit. When I say I'm an alcoholic, I don't admit that I am necessarily neurotic, psychotic, weak-willed, wishy-washy, lazy, shiftless, no-account, unemployable, unemployed, of little learning, or of poor background. All characteristics that I associated with alcoholics before I met you good people. I only admit that I cannot take a drink safely. And I think that this is important because if there is a word in the English language that has delayed and even denied People, the benefit of this great gift of sobriety, it's that grating sound of the word alcoholic, particularly if you are one who is still practicing his or her art. (laughs) Now, this is a definition that Buck shared with me, and I know he did with Dick at his first meeting. And it's not very uh, scientific, it's not very comprehensive, but it's very practical. An alcoholic is a person who can't drink safely. But I didn't hear this definition and come here with rushing speed. I didn't go to my first meeting that first night and say, Thank goodness. I found my own people that I've been looking for, that I've been searching for. I came here kicking and screaming, and I came here under false colors, and I came here really just to get the heat off. There are a lot of I-nevers in my background. I was never a daily drinker. I was never a morning drinker. I was never a spree drinker. I've never been in a treatment center. I've never consulted a physician because of my drinking. I've never been divorced because of drinking. I've been married uh, 51 years to the same woman. That might be the only thing you take away from this meeting tonight. Uh, I've never been fired from a job because of drinking. Some of you are wondering already, what's this guy going to talk about tonight? I didn't say I was never arrested because of drinking, did I? Because I've never had a DWI, though. I knew the cops in Washington, you know. Uh, Never had a DWI. But uh, I have been, uh, like some of you, unjustly arrested in the past. <laughs> and uh, I don't know exactly how many arrests I had. I accumulated 8, 10, 12 arrests. I wish I had kept better records because uh, I didn't know that it would be a matter of prestige here one day <laughs> in AA. And for all I know, AA... I, could open up some kind of a pension plan, I could lose out on my benefits.
1: But anyhow,
0: I had what I considered to be the normal, red-blooded, fun-loving schoolboy arrests. Something that happened to any kid that believed in Rule 62 in college and in law school. I was later to find out that the character committee of the bar didn't feel that way about it. Incidentally, John... You mentioned that the first two people, you know, a lot of people think AA was started by raggedy-baggedies. First one, as you said, was a stockbroker, a proctologist, and then AA number three was a lawyer. Two out of three isn't bad, is it? But anyhow, I like to drink with people. I like to share myself. I like other people to enjoy my... uh, my humor, my erudition, my stories, my scintillating wit. And uh, I usually drank with a an non-tourish, and I drank out. I'm not one of these guys that drank at home. I bet I didn't drink two cases of beer from the day I got married till I came in the AA at home. I'm not one of these guys that sat around at home like some of you in their, in their underwear, all numbed up. Looking at the tube with one eye closed, drinking that, snapping that six pack. I like the bright lights and the music, you know what I mean? I like the action. But sometimes when I felt down, sometimes when I felt low, I preferred to do solitary drinking by myself in a low class place. Because I could go into a place like this and look at the other customers and get an immediate lift. A feeling that I'm better than these people. And there was a place like that in Washington, Jimmy's. It was a basement bar room. Jimmy, who owned the place, was a pretty good drinker himself. And uh, there was always a row of tired old men in there, sitting there in these long coats they had been given down. Army coats had been given down at the Mission. And uh, these guys are not arguing baseball or politics. That's 20 years ago. They're all sitting there having their private fun. They're all sitting there drinking, looking straight ahead at the mirror. Their wine that was very muscatel. Some of you are old enough to remember that. A good sturdy fortified 18% wine, and uh, they would sit there, nice big glass they got for a very nominal fee, and they're uh, they're nursing their drink. And I go in there and uh, I started to amuse myself. I sat down there and I'm looking in the mirror, and I'm having sort of a meditation. I'm thinking to myself, you know, kid, look how you struggled and worked to get through law school. You've had it pretty tough. You got out of school, you had a wife and three kids. I had a wife that was continuously getting pregnant. Continuously. When I came in AA, we had six kids. We wound up with eight. We're Catholic. We practiced the rhythm system. But I never got the beat. So I sat there, I was having this meditation. I said, "You know, other guys, when they got out of law school, the family gave them a big car or helped them set up the law office or something like that. What did you get? You came out of school with a bunch of bills with a wife and the three kids, and I was sort of you know enjoying this self pity feeling sorry for myself and uh, having this little meditation and I'm sitting there drinking my vodka and orange juice and making circles with my glass, like I used to do, and have a couple of ch- more drinks and start to arrange my change. We really gave up a lot when we came in here, didn't we? You know? But anyhow, uh, so I'm having this meditation, and the old men and I myself, we looked like we were watching a ping-pong match. Every time the door opened, we turned and looked. I don't know who we were expecting, but we looked in the wrong direction, because that night, in the far corner of the bar room, there was a drunken woman. Woo. She got in some kind of an argument with the owner. I don't know if she got the wrong change or the wrong drink or what happened, but they're hollering back and forth and back and forth the old men now are getting annoyed disturbing their meditation <laughs> and this woman then hurled some obscenities across that room that visibly shook up these old men they thought we we thought this was a respectable low class place <laughs> jimmy called the police up and they re- they were there in 2 minutes And I'm sitting there sipping my drink, and I'm watching this drama unfold. And uh, the cops go over, and they call her this woman. She's like that Annie the Cop Fighter. You know what I mean? She's swinging her purse around like a lasso, and they're trying to get the arms on her. Jimmy had these old wire-back chairs and tables like they put in ice cream places now to make them look old-timey. Only that's his original equipment, you know. (laughs) And they're dragging her and half this furniture out of the place. And I don't know what happened. In a flash of inspiration, I reached into my pocket and pulled out one of my lawyer cards. (laughs) And I held my arm out and I said, Baby... If they give you a hard time, call Ernie the attorney. And I never got to pull my arm back. I got jerked right out to the paddy wagon with her. She and I went down to the number two precinct together, sharing our experience, strength, and hope with each other. I didn't have the ten bucks to buy my way out. My partner had to come down and bail me out the next morning. I've told that story so many times. Years later, I was speaking at a gratitude breakfast in Washington, and my partner was there with his daughter, who is now in AA. And when I spotted him in the audience, I had him get up and take a little bow. I thought that was appropriate. But my philosophy in those days, and still my philosophy, is Big Ernie works hard, And he plays hard. And uh, after a tough day in court or a hard day in the office interviewing witnesses or listening to clients, I've never been a good listener. (laughs) Identify, do you? Anyhow, 5 o'clock would roll around and I'd call up one of my classmates or colleagues. One of them would call me up and would meet at a convenient place among our respective offices in downtown Washington. And um, just a block from my office is a very, very fashionable hotel, the Jefferson. Now, the Jefferson, you never see anybody there with a tag on or a convention or nobody in the lobby hollering, hey, Charlie, or anything like that. It's (laughs) all hushed tones, very, very high class. Organ player there that uh, he could tell a mood I was in as I walked in. If I was in a mood for show tunes, he'd start playing show tunes. If I had a Spanish mystique about me that night, he'd play my theme song, which was I Get Ideas. Adios, adios muchachos. I was a tango man. And would go in, and uh, I was sort of the leader of the group. And everybody's getting settled in. I have a order around. I get that drink down. And uh, guys are just like getting seated. I'm ordering the next round. And then I'd slip out to the phone. I'd call my wife up. And uh, I'd say, Kathy, you and the kids go ahead and eat. Uh, don't hold dinner up for me. I'm tied up with some clients here. The tango of music's playing in the background. And as uh, soon as I can shake loose, I'll be right along. And Kathy says, please don't stay out and get drunk tonight. I'd say, Kathy, I'm down here trying to scratch a living out for you people. You're giving me this static. Tonight I am going to stay out to let you know who's boss in our house. See, this is before women's lib when you could talk that way. We have all those new terms now, you know. But anyhow, uh, so my wife had like given me a pass now because I never drank comfortably. I never wanted to get drunk. I never wanted to neglect my wife and children. I wanted to be a good father and a good husband and a good lawyer. My intentions were always good. And so I never drank comfortably. I always drank with a mantle of guilt or a mantle of responsibility. Always I pressure-type drinking. Well, I'm going to have a couple and be out of here at a, a quarter after six. And you know what would happen after a few drinks and the discussions and everything, and a couple hours would roll by, and I'd go to order a round, and one of the guys would say, "Hold up, Ernie," and I'd I'd say, "What do you mean? This is we're just getting into the shank of the evening," <laughs> and he'd say, "I'm worried about driving," and the party would break up, and I'd go on uh, and proceed the, to cut the biggest widest swath as I fashioned it in Cafe Society in downtown Washington. And uh, usually around 2 in the morning, that's when they had last call, I'd wind up in some bar with these fascinating newfound friends. <laughs> New fa- fascinating people. Fascinating people. And uh, being pretty persuasive, I'd drag them over to an after-hours place in Chinatown, and I'd come in maybe three, four, five in the morning, still humming those show tunes, and maybe that's why I didn't need the morning drink, you know. <laughs> Anyhow, my poor wife tried every approach in the books. She tried that head-on confrontation, which never worked with uh, for her, because... Uh, you don't argue with a practicing alcoholic. You just provoke a big fight. And poor Kathy had, uh, I don't know if she had ever heard of AA. I know she had never heard of Al-Anon at the time. I'm happy to say that uh, she did learn about Al-Anon, became a member, still a member, still goes to Al-Anon meetings. She's a member in good standing and that that fellowship has enriched the life of our family. And uh, so that approach didn't work for her. She she had another approach, and she travels with me quite often, and she doesn't like me to imitate her. And she doesn't sound like this, but this is how I always heard her. What I call the grinding approach. I'd come down in the morning and she'd start this grinding.
1: need. <laughs>
0: I had to go over the children's report cards last night by myself because you weren't here. And they have to be turned in today. Ernie. <laughs> Kids were going to a parochial school. Sister called about Joey's hair. Joey had hair down to his shoulder. He looked like a little Jesus. <laughs> You got to remember, this is over forty years ago. Kids were wearing flat tops. This is before the Beatles. I told sister that you'd take Joey out for a haircut. His hair isn't cut, Ernie. Just like grinding on my aorta. And what could I? Everything she said, everything she said was gospel true. I had to, uh, I had to suffer through all of this. Now, another approach my wife used is I'd come down in the morning. She wouldn't be friendly. She wouldn't be unfriendly. She'd be doing her work. She's scrambling eggs for the kids. Bread's going in and out of the toaster. I'm drinking a little coffee, and I have one eye closed trying to focus on a newspaper. And I'm waiting for the bombs to fall. Some of us are a little impatient. After a little while, I'd say, okay, Kathy, cut the act. I know what's bugging you. It's my drinking. But you know what the real problem is? The real problem is that you're not normal like other women. That's the real problem. Now, let me explain that. My wife and I met when we were students at Catholic University. She was in a graduate nursing school. On her 21st birthday, a couple of her girlfriends took her down to a nice seafood restaurant on the Potomac River on the Wharf in Washington. She had her first drink of beverage alcohol. She got a little tipsy. She got a little silly. She got a little nauseated. She got a little uncomfortable. And she decided she didn't like this stuff. And my wife hasn't had a drink from that day till tonight. Were she here, she would have stood up on 51 years. That's how long she's been sober. And I said, if you were like other women, Kathy, I'd come home. We could have a gracious drink together. This was a lie. My idea of a gracious drink isn't to come home and have ten or twelve hands with peanut butter and jelly pulling on my
1: pants saying
0: fix my wagon daddy but I'd say if my drinking bothers you this much I'm going to quit I'm going to quit as the philosophers say Semper Pro Semper means always and forever a beautiful expression (laughs) And when I'd say this, my eyes would sort of well up with the inner goodness I saw in myself. <laughs> Not only was I going to quit drinking, kids were bringing these little things home from school, pictures of the gray lung. You know, this is like a smoker's convention when I came out here tonight. But that's another, that's another story. But anyhow... They came with these uh, pictures of the gray light, and they used to say, Why do you smoke, Daddy? <laughs> so uh, I was going to quit drinking, and I was going to quit smoking. And uh, I didn't tell you this earlier, but at, at the time I came to my first meeting, I weighed 308 pounds. I'm practically back up to that now. But uh, I'll tell you, alcohol being cunning, baffling, and powerful, I thought I was too fat to be an alcoholic. <laughs> what do you think about? <laughs> My idea of an alcoholic was a guy that was real skinny, the kind you see blowing around on a windy day. They have a lot of slack in the seat of their pants, sort of look like their rear end was shot off in World War II. That was an alcoholic. But anyhow, I weighed 308 pounds, I was going to go on a diet. And we're Catholic, I had not been a confession in a long time. Saturday I was going to go to confession, and Sunday I was going to march up to the communion rail with the kids. And it almost makes me miss the eye now to think of this spontaneous, emotional, and physical, and spiritual regeneration of a man. But when I said these things, I meant them. And I was pretty persuasive. Remember, I was a jury lawyer. So... Uh, my wife would say, okay, I'm going to see if you keep your promise this time. And she had enabled me one more time. That's another one of our new terms, isn't it? Enabled. You know, we, uh, I, I remember when I came in like codependent code was something you put on your tax return. You know, we have all these... But anyhow, so that first day, I'll tell you, I went down... I'd. And by this time in my drinking, I was having these horrendous three- and four-day hangovers, terrible, terrible hangovers, numbed up, bumping into things. And uh, it could be February. I'm sweating profusely, dehydrated, hitting every 7-Eleven for the big bottle of orange pop, all of the fountains in the courthouse, you know, sweating profusely. And I didn't smoke. I was afraid my head would blow off. I was afraid to light a cigarette up. And I'd go downtown and just go through the motions. But I made my promise to my wife I'd be home at 6 o'clock that night. Day number two, I'm still hungover. I'm feeling slightly better. I'm feeling well enough to open up the mail, see if any money came in. (laughs) I'm home at 6 o'clock, as promised. My wife's getting encouraged. Day number three, I get a little peck on the cheek as I go out the door. I get downtown, I get a little bit of work done. I'm home, six o'clock as promised. Kathy has this wonderful meatloaf dinner. I'm going to give you the recipe. It's one pound of basic hamburger with about seven loaves of bread stuffed into it. Catholics could eat this on Friday under the old
1: rules.
0: (laughs) After dinner, after dinner, we'd take the overdue books back to the library, maybe go to the five and ten, do a little shopping, and day number four, I'd get up and I'm well. I feel like a young lion. I jump out of bed like a jack-in-the-box. And I go over and throw a window open, take a big, deep breath of air. Vigorous. I uh, I feel like a young lion. I feel great. It's great to be alive. You know, the famous Father Martin says there's four terrible enemies of sobriety. Youth. Health. <laughs> Wealth and brains.
1: <laughs>
0: I can tell you, we share our experience, strength, and hope here. My experience has been, I've met people who were too smart to make AA. I never met anybody too dumb to make this program. So I was 33 years old, and I was full of myself, and I charged out of house with vigor. And when those good days come along, you've got to grab them and I'd get a week's work done in one day. In fact, I'd be so charged up with accomplishment that I couldn't go home and inflict myself on my family in that agitated state and I'd stop just for a beer to ease off. Sometimes I'd get almost home and then work my way the whole way back to downtown and I'm off to the races again. That's my drunk There came a day in February of 1961 when I was on the town I crept in about four or five in the morning, got a couple hours of sleep, got up and started to creep out, and my wife stopped me. And she said, you know, Ernie, I took you for better or for worse. But the children were not a party to that agreement. Any life is better than this. I'm going back to western Pennsylvania to your aged parents or my own, whichever will have us. And I didn't sing the show tunes that morning. I didn't remonstrate with her, argue with her. I was hungover. I was sick, and I knew I had run out of promises. And I went downtown, and it seems that the hangover set in real early. And right behind it, this terrible, terrible lash of remorse. This terrible feeling of—I wonder if anybody besides us has ever has this kind of an experience. This feeling of just no worth, of being a phony and empty and. Hollow and sick and uh, fear, full of fear and what's going to happen and impending doom and all of that. And I got downtown. I got a little rest. I went to my office and I was due in federal court that morning to argue a motion at 10 o'clock. And I might not be here tonight as events unfolded had I not been number one on the motions calendar, but I was. I argued my motion. I got out of court at 11 o'clock. And I stood there. There are a few of you here old enough to remember when Kennedy was inaugurated. He had been inaugurated the previous month. Uh, there was a tremendous snowstorm. They had 10,000 National Guardsmen clean the, the, the snow off the streets. And By this time in mid-February, the, the, the dregs of this snow were just dirty in the gutter. And I stood there in a corner of 3rd and C Street just looking at that dirty snow and it was a gray, bleak, funereal day and just a couple blocks away here is the dome of the U.S. Capitol. And I says, I need to talk to somebody. I can't go back to my office. I need to talk to somebody. And I walked down the side street from the courthouse to the office of another lawyer. He and I had never been drinking buddies. Our paths maybe had crossed that way once. We had been in one previous case together. Why I went to his office, I'll never know. And I went in and I said, Hugh, come on down a corner and have coffee with me. I need to talk to somebody. My wife is leaving me today. He said, sit down, I'll send out for coffee. And we talked for a little while and we got around to talking about the evils of booze somehow. And Hugh told me that uh, he hadn't had a drink in six months. And I said, that's wonderful, Hugh. I said, everyone around the courts knows what a drunk you are. (laughs) He didn't like that too much. And then he dropped a bombshell on me. He said, I'm in AA. And I said, no. No. You're with those tambourine rattlers, or whatever those people do. Now, let me tell you the context of my life, unless you think I'm too much of a high bottom. When Hugh made this disclosure to me, we owed five months' rent on our rented house. I had no credit cards. You hear people who have bounced checks My last deposit bounced. I didn't have a checking account. The National Bank of Washington sent my money back. The last time I sent money in with a note that you were too much trouble. This account requires too much supervision. They closed it. You know, that bank went under and I'm sober and solvent here tonight. You hear people owe their lawyers money on these DWI cases and everything. I owed my clients money. I used to borrow money from my clients. We owed we owed about twenty five thousand, which allowing for inflation be like a couple hundred thousand. Nothing to show for it. I had a car that was all dinged up. It looked like it the women will understand it, it looked like it'd been washed and starched but not pressed. You know what I mean? No hubcaps, smooth tires, Buck was taking me to a meeting every night after I came into AA. And after about three months, I says, I feel guilty, you driving. Let me drive tonight. He says, Ernie, you haven't been in long enough to have good tires, which was true. I had one suit of clothes. I had a dry cleaner. It was my client. I used to go there every morning and stand in the back. I thought this was perfectly natural and normal. I stood in the back in my underwear while he pressed my suit up to go to court. No life insurance, no health insurance, no car insurance. And when Hugh told me he was in AA, you know what emotion I experienced? Pity. I felt sorry for him. Just then the phone rang, and my sponsor-to-be called up, the great Bug Doyle. And he said to Hugh, you're going to go to the AA lunch today. And Hugh said, yeah. And he says, by the way, there's a fat one here you might want to talk to. He (laughs) says, I'm not getting too far with him. So, uh, Hugh hung up the phone and he said, you know, we have sponsors in AA. You got to meet my sponsor. This guy's a man's man. He flew with General Chenault, the Flying Tigers, over in China. A real, you got to meet this guy. And I says, well, some other time. He says, why are you coming to this lunch? And I says, Hugh, I'm hungover. My wife's. I'm not in the mood to go to some lunch. He says, I'll even buy your lunch. I says, no thanks. And then all of a sudden a light bulb went on in my head. I says, wait a minute. If I go to this lunch, will you call my wife up, tell her I filled the forms out and joined this AA thing? He says, we don't have any forms, but we'll call her. So I went to the lunch. I met Buck. I was impressed with the guys I met over there. They were my kind of people. They were the drinking set. Only they're sitting around eating these big ice cream sundaes. And we came back to Hugh's office and Buck got on the phone, called my wife up. Luckily, our phone was working. We used to have a lot of utility problems. We used to have a lot of romantic candlelight dinners. And... uh he said to Kathy, he said, uh, these poor spouses, what they go through. Kathy, this is Buck Doyle. I'm an AA. I'm an alcoholic. We're talking to Ernie. Ernie thinks he might have a drinking problem. What do you think? <laughs> what do you think she thought, you know? <laughs> Buck was a terrific salesman. He said, uh, you know, Ernie's willing to go to a meeting tonight. You might not have any faith in this big clown. But maybe you could have some faith in this program. It's worked for the lawyer whose office we're sitting in. He says, it's worked for me, and it's worked for a couple hundred thousand more. That's how many we had at the time. Why don't you stick around and see what happens? Poor woman had no place to go. She said, okay. So that night I went over to my first AA meeting in South Arlington, Virginia. I've never lived in Virginia. My sponsor lived there, and he subsequently ordered me to go to meetings there. Believe it or not, in those days, we used to do what our sponsors told us to do. (laughs) Buck, at the time, was sponsoring like three lawyers and three priests amongst everybody else he was sponsoring. And because of the priest, he had the nickname Monsignor Doyle. (laughs) And we were hoping he'd get promoted to bishop. That way, we'd only have to kiss his ring. Because this guy... He's like Dick is over here, very judgmental, very judgmental on AA stuff. Anyhow, so uh, I went to the meeting that night, and I'll tell you how how I identified. There were about 80 people in a room, and I felt like they were in two groups, 79 in one group and me in the other group. But there was a young guy there celebrating his first anniversary, one of Buck's sponsees, as we now call him. And you couldn't help but be inspired. He was going to Harvard Business School. His parents were in the front row just exuding gratitude. And he told this wonderful story. And I was very impressed. And I thought to myself, this is a wonderful program for these people. <laughs> but something happened for the first time in my colossally arrogant life. I started to follow directions that night. Buck told me to buy the big book, which I did. He told me to read it. I devoured it. I don't think you can digest it in a lifetime, however, because I still pick it up and read a lot of uh, uh stuff in it that looks very new from the perspective, hopefully, of my growth growth in this program. But uh, I took to AA like a duck takes to water. And so many good things happened to me with such rushing speed that I ran right past the steps when I came here I thought that AA was about two things one quitting drinking and two getting stuff because we needed stuff I mean we needed stuff like mattresses you know at the beginning I mean we needed stuff I won't tell you how long I was in the AA and how much pain I had And how much stuff I... I acquired this stuff. The big houses and the big cars and the Caribbean vacations and the the kids in the best schools and the the nice hedges and everything. And, And it was dry. It was a desert. It was a desert. And I was in great pain. And it's the grace of God that kept me sober through all of that. And I came back to these steps. And I learned what it says in the introduction of the 12 and 12. That the 12 steps... A group of principles, spiritual in nature, which if practiced as a way of life can relieve the sufferer of the obsession to drink and permit a life that's happily and usefully whole. And that's what I want. Happily and usefully whole. Oh yes, I got very active in AA at the beginning. I became the GSR in my group. Ultimately became the delegate to New York. Got to meet and fellowship with Bill Wilson. I have a picture of me and Bill. Uh, So many, many good things have happened to me. I got active in the Bar Association, the trial lawyers, uh, the Alumni Association, the Boy Scouts, my church. All these activities are important, but they're external. AA action is internal. It's the worst. It's the steps working on my soul and my psyche. This is what I told you, the Slow Learners Group. It's been a slow and painful Lesson for me, but you know what? After 40 years, I think I'm starting to get a handle on it. A little bit of a handle on it, you know. Time takes time, but I can tell the newest person here, it can always get better for you. It just gets better and better and better. Well, I'm into the home stretch. I know about the dance. (laughs) Let me say this. Let me say this. That, uh, God has been very good to us. We have eight children. All are university graduates. Uh, four have advanced degrees. One son's an obstetrician. A couple are lawyers. have a daughter that's a senior executive in a pharmaceutical company. I used to say that none of my children seem to have a problem with alcohol or drugs. None of them even smoke. There's one now that I suspect maybe who makes a tremendous amount of money, but I think he might be having a problem with alcohol. I uh, have to watch him from a distance. But uh, the affliction I had might skip most of my family and land on my grandchildren like a plague. There are 13 of them. If one of them needs it, I want it to be as simple and as loving and as bright and honest and shiny as a new penny. The love of one drunk for another, like Bill Wilson shared with Dr. Bob. Uh, like Bug Doyle shared with me, like you have shared with your sponsors and sponsees. If there's a duty we have beyond our own sobriety, it's to keep this thing the way we found it for generations, yet unborn. You know, the newest person, my dear friend that came up here and got the big book here, and I can tell you I was around all of these philosophers and theologians at Catholic University. That's why I felt I didn't need some adding machine salesman talking to me about spirituality, that I knew the theologians. The wisdom, the distillation of the wisdom of the ages is in the first 164 pages of the book that you were given today. And it took me a long time uh, to learn that. But that we have a wonderful thing here that we're sharing in many other ways with the rest of the world. Just the ability for me to get up here and be able to take the mask off that so many of us have hidden behind so much of our lives and know will be accepted here unconditionally as we present ourselves as we are who we are is a wonderful, comfortable thing. The mutual vulnerability we have that we don't have to be afraid to be honest with each other. So the newest person in this room in AA, from a historical perspective, is going to be looked upon as amongst the founding generations of one of the great movements of all time if you look at the Christian church the people in the first hundred years are called the fathers of the church we're only 66 years a baby organization really and where are we going to be 50, 100, 500 years from now that's something we have to think about well it's been a wonderful evening a wonderful weekend and. I think that uh, what Buck told me that very first day is uh, good for the new person to know that we have an allergy coupled with an obsession of the mind. So it's not unlike somebody that has a hay fever. If they're around ragweed, they're going to sneeze. doesn't matter if they're a hard shell Baptist or an atheist, Ph.D. or illiterate. And if we're around booze, it's going to catch up with us sooner or later. And Buck explained that to me. That was pretty easy to understand. What fascinates me even tonight is how you and I found ourselves here. How are we assembled here? Tonight, right nearby here, there's some guy like me, big loud guy, that's being waked in a funeral. He died a drunkard's death. And his family is there half grief, half relief. It's all right to die of cancer. It's still not all right to die a drunk. Some woman like one of you tonight, and I've seen it, I'm a lawyer, is going to pulverize a kid with her car, wake up tomorrow morning behind bars and not even know what a heinous thing she did last night. That's going to happen. Uh, some lawyer that's helped a lot of people and his, his time, is going to be disbarred this week. His drinking has caught up with him. And you and I are here celebrating life. How is it we're here? This was a gift, I think, given to you and me, maybe, but this once. So I want to keep it and share it with you a day at a time, as we trudge not to a weekend conference, but to a meeting that's never going to end at a place called Happy Destiny. I think Bill and Bob... And our sponsors and the giants that came before us will be there. And I hope you are, and I are there until we meet again, uh, wherever it will be. May God keep and bless all of us. Thank you.